So we live in a world that constantly seems to be in some state of anger. And I would say this is both a good thing and it's also a a bad thing. As moral beings who are made in the image of the living God, who is certainly a moral being, we are hardwired to believe that the categories of right and wrong, they always matter. And thank God, this can never be eradicated from humanity. Even our own society, which is increasingly morally relativistic and subjective, people still think, almost everywhere, that some definition of right and wrong are essential for human existence. So in this way, anger is actually a very good thing. It's a blessing for us. But all of us regularly as well have tasted the curse of sinful anger. We are bombarded daily with examples of anger that has gone terribly wrong. Our news headlines, especially this last year, are filled with all kinds of fleshly, destructive anger. From riots in inner cities that injure people and destroy property, to angry mobs that storm our nation's capital. It seems that some of our nation's biggest problems come from people who are stuck in anger that is evil and wicked from people who don't know how to do anger well in a godly way. Our political, our public discourse more and more is dominated nonstop by outrage 24-7. So the people often who get the microphone the longest are those who can spew the most hateful anger at their enemies. The worst examples of people on the left and on the right are all people who are stuck and destructive anger. We can think about what is at the root of so many of the sinful things that do the most damage on planet Earth. Things like war, or divorce, or conflicts, or violence, or murder, or abusive behavior. It's anger, right? Anger that's gone off the rails. Ungodly anger has its fingerprints on a myriad of sins that have a long trail of damage in its wake. So we can think easily about some of the worst examples of human depravity that exist in our own city, in our own nation, in our world. They all come from a heart that's ruled and filled with evil anger. And we can honestly see that poisonous anger is the problem out there in our society, but it plays a huge role in many of our daily experiences as husbands and wives, as children and parents, as friends, as family members, as co-workers, all of us have been the victims of someone else's anger. And we are all perpetrators of unholy anger. Anger comes in a variety of forms that range all the way from a lethal dose of rage to much lower doses of bitterness that will slowly poison us and others around us over the course of a lifetime. So anger might be one of the most common, everyday, garden-variety kinds of sins we commit. And so the danger in it for us is that we can just become so accustomed to sinful anger that it becomes difficult to see what it really is and to discern the damage that it creates. So our goal this morning is to turn to God's Word to better help us understand what anger is all about in both its redemptive and sinful forms And also for us to see how we can deepen our repentance 
in our anger and transform our anger into something that better reflects the glory and the love of God. So today's sermon, we're not going to unpack just one uh, biblical text, but we're really going to look at an overview of anger uh, in the scriptures to see what it has to say. Okay, so first, I want to start with an exposition of anger. What is the essence of anger? What is it really about when we boil it down to its most basic form? Well, our only sure foundation of rightly understanding and knowing what anger is is first by beginning with the character of God. If we don't start with God and understanding anger, we're going to be lost as to know the goodness of anger and also exactly at what point our anger goes wrong and becomes something evil. So when we read the scriptures, it's very clear from the very beginning or from early on that God experiences on something, on some kind of level, something that's analogous to anger. God's anger always demonstrates what he is against. It is always a moral judgment against sin. And God's anger is actually a very, very good thing. This is hard for some of us to believe because of our own experiences of how either we have done anger ourselves or how anger has been done to us in a way that's overwhelmingly sinful. But it's vital for us to see that God's anger is perfectly good, it is perfectly righteous, and that anger doesn't have to be inherently sinful. God's moral judgment against sin, it shows up from the very beginning of the biblical story when sin first enters into the picture with the fall of Adam and Eve. We see in this Story God's decree of judgment against the sin of our first parents and also his judgment against the serpent, Satan, in Genesis 3. God's right to judge is absolute. It flows from the fact that he and he alone is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. All human judgments are only right to the degree that they reflect and they approximate God's perfect, righteous judgment against sin. Sinful anger is about the foolish attempt really to shove God off his throne so that we can take his place. So godly righteous anger, it is a gift. It is a gift for many reasons. Some of the reasons is it's designed to protect people from the destructive power of sin. Again, we see this in the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis 3 in God's judgment on the serpent. And this judgment on the serpent includes the first gospel promise that God will raise up a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So we can see the loving, protective anger of God all throughout the scriptures. You can think about the story of the Exodus, right, where God brings terrible judgment on Egypt in the form of these ten plagues. And he does all this because of his infinite love for Israel, his covenant people who had been brutally enslaved and oppressed for several centuries. So what we see in the Exodus story and in various other places in the Bible is that God's salvation and God's judgment are actually two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. If God doesn't judge his enemies through his righteous, holy anger, then there is no salvation for God's people. The most dramatic display of this truth in the biblical story comes at the very end of the scriptures. In the book of Revelation, when we read about King Jesus coming again to judge the world as a conquering king who will bring final salvation and final judgment to his enemies. 
So again, it's important to see that God's judgment is not about him being cruel. It's not about him being mean, but it's about expressing his righteous anger against sin, something that we would say is very good, very loving, and very right. Throughout the scriptures in a variety of places, the Bible connects God's judgment with his anger or his wrath. So remember the scripture we read a few minutes ago out of the book of Psalms, Psalm 7. The psalmist says here, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. So here the psalmist describes the living God as the righteous judge who feels holy anger in light of the sinful things that happen in our world on a daily basis. And so every time we are angry, we are making a moral judgment, either in a way that accurately reflects God's moral judgments or in a way that's going to distort God's righteous decrees into our own fallen, sinful judgment. And our culture increasingly views this aspect of God and this part of our Christian teaching as offensive, that God is the judge of all the earth. He is a God of judgment. The idea that we often hear outside of the church is that a God of judgment cannot be a God of love, that believing this makes God cruel and makes uh, Christians cruel as well. When we read the scriptures, we, we see very quickly just how backwards and upside down this is. A God who never judges would be a God who never opposes evil who essentially lets evil go unchecked and unchallenged. It's been said by numerous people that the opposite of love isn't hate or wrath, but it's indifference. And that is certainly true in something that I think reflects what we see in the scriptures. That being indifferent towards sin or suffering is a sign that you do not love someone else. You can see this in places like Mark 3 where Jesus heals a man with his crippled hand who shows up in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In this scene, we see Jesus heal not only this man, but he also goes after the religious leaders for their utter cruelty and their indifference to the suffering of this unnamed man. The Jewish leaders' legalistic devotion to the Sabbath laws to the exclusion of love and care for this human being and makes Jesus angry, we're told. We're told that Jesus looked around them with anger and that he was grieved at their hardness of heart. So again, the culturally popular idea of being cruel to believe in a God of judgment, a God of righteous anger, this sounds nice on paper, but it so quickly falls apart when you try to apply this to the real world of sin and suffering that we live in. The utter cruelty of rejecting the God of judgment becomes immediately obvious whenever you hear the stories of people who have been victimized by someone else in a heinous way. If you ever hear someone else's story of being sexually assaulted or used or abused as a child, and the perpetrators of these sins are people who were never charged with a crime, There are people who have never been held accountable in any way. What becomes abundantly clear is that it's incredibly good news that the living God is the judge of all the earth, the judge who will do right. If we have no God of just judgment, 
If we have no God of holy, righteous anger, then what we are really advocating for is a terrifying world, a world where sin is never addressed, a world where people are never called to account and held responsible for their actions. Scholar Anders Nigren, he succinctly states this well. He says, as long as, as God is God, he cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed. So God's righteous anger flows from his love, from his passionate love for the display of his own glory, and also his love for his people, his creation. And so attempting to create a world without God's just judgment would actually be one of the fastest ways to make the world the most evil, cruel, miserable place that we could imagine. So the Bible always views the fact that God is the perfect judge of this world as extremely good news. as something that actually fuels our joy and our worship. We don't just accept the fact that God is the righteous judge of all the world. We joyfully celebrate this. We proclaim this. We view this as an indispensable part of our faith. And again, you see this throughout the scriptures. Places like Psalm 67, 4, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Psalm 98, 7-9, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, and the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. See the same kind of language echoed in the New Testament, Revelation 19, where we're told that the saints in heaven, they rejoice, they sing, they worship because of the judgment of God that's poured out on Babylon. If we pay attention and we are honest about what happens around us all of the time, we clearly see that our world is crying out every day for true justice, for true judgment for God's perfect, righteous judgment to come and to sort out all the wrongs and to address all the things that people do that are wicked. We are bombarded daily with stories and images of things all around our world that are broken and incredibly wrong. Just as Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground, we live in a world where the deep misery of the injustice of sin continues to cry out to the living God, cry out for judgment to be rendered. When we as Christians see and when we hear the many conversations that have been happening in our country recently, conversations connected to issues of social justice or racial equality, we should see this as an opportunity for us to winsomely proclaim this truth, that the living God is the judge of all the earth and that the only true hope and hope for healing for our broken world, it's found in the living God alone, the one who judges people with perfect fairness, with perfect equity, and whose word gives us the only sure blueprint for know how to make a world that is just and right. All right, so we've seen that anger is a moral judgment always when God renders it and when we uh, do anger as well. We also need to see that, see that anger is also always, it's a value judgment as well. It's a value judgment. So not only does anger proclaim what you believe is right and what is wrong, but it also proclaims what you believe actually matters the most. 
We will never become angry over something that you view as worthless. Our anger only comes to us in our moments where we believe something or someone important is being threatened or harmed or jeopardized in some way. We see this clearly in every instance in the scriptures where God's righteous anger or his wrath is mentioned. God's righteous anger demonstrated in his judgment on sinners is about God protecting and promoting his own glory. The glory of God is the supreme value on planet Earth, and God rightly reveals his anger when his glory is diminished through human sin. And so if this is true of God's anger that reveals his supreme value of his own glory, then we must carefully consider what our own anger is revealing about what we value the most. God-honoring anger values the promotion of God's glory above everything else. And so this is another way that anger is actually a gift, as painful and as hard as it is to face, because our anger is like a mirror that God holds up to you to reveal some of the most important parts of what's happening in your own heart. People of God, do you want to know what you're truly living for, what you cherish above everything else? then carefully look at the places in your life where you are angry. And we have to face the painful truth that when we do this, often what anger reveals is that God's glory is not our greatest value, but instead something far less significant or something sinful. Like simply, I just am not getting my way. If we pay enough attention to our anger, what we will see is that our value system is deeply broken. That what we love the most and what we worship often are something other than the living God. We will see that far too often we make mountains out of molehills and that we are indifferent about the things that actually matter the most. Things that we actually should be getting angry about instead of the things that so often fuel our fleshly anger. Okay, so that's just a short exposition on what anger is about, what God's anger is like. And for the next couple of minutes, what I want to do uh, is I want to give us some practical things we can think about in moments of anger uh, in order to transform these moments and put to death sinful anger so that our anger better reflects uh, God's anger in a redemptive way. So we're in the moment of anger. What can we do in these moments? So I've got four things quickly here I want to mention. First, God wants us to slow down in our anger. That's one of the most frequent commands and teachings in the Bible regarding anger, to slow down, be slow to anger. It says it again and again and again in the Bible. Proverbs 14, 29, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. James essentially is echoing the teaching of the Old Testament when he writes, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And again, how we are to do anger is rooted in the fact that we are image bearers of the living God. The Bible tells us repeatedly that God himself is slow to anger. This means that God's anger is always measured. It's always the right amount for the right occasion doesn't fly off the handle in a fit of rage. And if God is slow to anger in all his perfections, 
there's an even greater need for us to slow down in our anger because we are fallen, we are finite people. Another reason it's, it's so important to slow down our anger because sinful anger is always seductive. It always feels right in the moment. And it never leaves any room for you to feel doubt about it. It leaves us feeling justified no matter how selfish or how sinful it is. And it wants to blind us to this so that we don't contemplate its dark, destructive power. When James says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, we may think that that sounds really obvious, right? Until you are stuck in the grips of anger. And then suddenly you have a very difficult time seeing the difference between your own sin and the righteousness that God calls his people to follow. Have you ever heard someone who's who's really angry try to explain to you why they're not angry? You you ever do this? You ever seen somebody raise his or her voice and they're clearly very agitated? Um, The volume is getting louder and maybe their face is getting red, but then they say, but I'm not angry. Um, sadly enough, I have resorted to this in conflicts at times. Why do we do that? It's absurdly comical that we do this and sad. But the reason that we do this, the reason people do this, is because it's difficult to imagine in the moment of anger how we could be anything other than completely righteous. And so we assume the rightness of our cause, and it's always just, and we must be the infallible judge in this moment. When we are stuck in fleshly anger, we aren't thinking we are angry. We're simply convicted that we are completely right, so right that it should be self-evident to everyone around us. This is counterintuitive to us, but the scriptures also teach us that there's enormous power that comes in slowing our anger down and being people who are self-controlled with anger. I think we read this in earlier in the service, Proverbs 16.32. This is really good. It says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And again, we see how often we just don't think this way. Our fallen world does not think this way about fleshly evil anger. They work hard to convince us that really just the opposite is true. The view that comes so easily to us is that sinful anger is power. Power to control someone else. Power to get what you want. And the self-control is somehow weak. Our flesh will always seduce us into thinking that sinful anger gives us the power to get what we want when we want it. Angry people often get the results, right, that they want. But the Bible says this is a weakness that will lead to self-destruction, not true power. The scriptures say that power resides in the person who's actually slow to anger, the person who knows how to appropriately wield anger so as not to be consumed by it. This is the kind of strength that empowers people to love and care for people well, strength that helps us avoid all the pitfalls that sinful anger makes us fall into. Okay, so we need to slow down in our anger. Second, we need to learn to cross-examine the anger that we feel. One of the ways we can slow down our anger is be willing to question the moral judgment that we're making in the midst of anger. Sinful anger, again, always wants you to feel and act like you are infallible, like you are God himself, that there's no possible way that you could be wrong. So fleshly anger is about striving, really, to be God. 
about living and acting like you and you alone are the perfect righteous judge who's going to mete out perfect righteous judgment. But wisdom dictates that we never forget that our judgments are fallible. They should always be cross-examined to ensure they're accurately reflecting God's righteous judgment. We see this in a variety of places in the scriptures when God confronts angry people. What does God do when he comes to Cain, the murderer? He says, why are you angry? He confronts Jonah in his anger saying, do you do well to be angry? He wants them to cross-examine themselves to examine the anger. So we should ask ourselves in these moments, am I angry about the right things? Am I angry about something that would make God angry, something that the Bible clearly says is wrong, or is my anger far more really about my own selfishness and my sin? Is my anger fueled by God-honoring motives, like opposing sin or protecting someone else? Or is my anger fueled by something that is clearly selfish, about making demands, people are making demands on my time and my energy that I wish they wouldn't be making? Do I care more about the glory of God and our anger, or is our anger more about feeling bad because you look bad in front of someone else? Other good questions to ask your anger in these moments are, are the following. What are your limitations in this particular situation? What is broken here that you are able to fix, and what are all the things that are broken that you have no power to change? You have no power to fix this. What are the things that you must entrust to God as judge in the moment? When we give in to sinful anger, what we're really saying is we are not willing to wait for God's flawless judgment to be executed. Righteous anger is patient anger. Anger that works towards making the world a more just place, but also anger that knows its own limits and is long-suffering and waiting for God's perfect judgment to come in full when the Lord Jesus comes again. Okay, the third thing we can do in our anger is that um, we need to fight and work hard to not let anger be our exclusive response to sin. This, again, is one of the many problems with our culture, especially in the sectors of politics and the media. Those on the left and those on the right tell us that we need to be angry pretty much all the time about everything that the people on the other side are doing. Instead of our news outlets doing legitimate journalism, many of them have been reduced to just outrage machines that churn out anger and tell us to be angry all the time. So fleshly anger has a way of gobbling up any other emotions that are actually good, that are redemptive, that God wants us to feel in the face of somebody else's sin. And when this happens, we become bitter people, we become hard people, we become cynical people who have no desire to love other people, especially our enemies. But God wants us to be people who are more than just angry in the face of sin. You see a powerful picture of this in Luke's gospel in the very, near the very end, chapter 19, when Jesus enters Jerusalem during his final week of ministry before his death. You remember what happens when Jesus sees the city? He weeps. He weeps because he knows full well what will happen to Jerusalem within just one generation. It'll be completely destroyed by the Roman army. Everyone there is going to be killed or captured, and this will take place as an act of God's judgment, his divine vengeance on his people for their opposition to him. So this emotional scene in Luke 19, Jesus proclaims to Jerusalem as he weeps, would that you, even you, had known on this day 
the things that make for peace. So what we see here is more than just anger. We see deep sadness. We see grief from the Lord Jesus over the sin of his people. We see Jesus proclaiming the certain coming reality of God's judgment on his people, but also a longing for it not to be this way. So we should model this response to sin around us in our own context. Can we talk about people who have currently made themselves enemies of God and express something other than outrage? Can we express grief over this? Do the people who set themselves in opposition to God make us sad? Even in our good anger, do we express longing for it not to be this way? Longing for people to repent and believe and turn away from their sin and get on the path of life, the path that leads to Jesus. All right, the fourth thing I want to mention, this is the final thing I want to say before we close our time in God's Word. In the midst of our anger, we must remember and trust that the gospel is true for us. People of God, the cross is the place where we see this merciful miracle of God's righteous anger that was poured out on sin. And the heart of this miracle is that God crushes sin without crushing us, his people. Because Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, we can know for sure that God's righteous judgment on our sin has been extinguished so that now God is for me. He's not against me. And so at the very heart of the gospel message is this marvelous display of God's righteous anger, his righteous judgment towards sin. God's righteous anger demonstrated in Jesus' atonement. It's our greatest hope that God forgives angry people, that he's come to restore and transform angry people by his spirit into people who more and more reflect his righteous anger. And so we as God's people are to seek to model God's anger in how we deal with each other's sin. Fleshly anger wants to destroy all sin and all sinners, and it only leaves a trail of spiritual and relational destruction in his path. But anger that's informed by the gospel seeks to confront sin while demonstrating mercy and grace towards undeserving people. When we look to the gospel in faith, we are empowered to do anger now in a new way, in a different way that communicates our passion against sin and our love for people. We remember that God has chosen to crush our sin without crushing us, and so we can seek now to treat other sinners in a similar way. People of God in the gospel, we see and we experience God's holy redemptive anger in a way that leads to life and not death. So in your anger, look to the gospel. Remember the gospel. Cling to the gospel in order to remember what redemptive anger looks like. Look to the gospel to know how to trust that God is judge and he's already rendered judgment over your sin and Jesus so that now you are someone who is forgiven and you are reconciled to God. Look to the gospel to find deep comfort in the judgment of God that has already come in Jesus and will come one day again when Jesus returns to this earth to judge the living and the dead.